Okay. <clears throat> I'm setting a timer this time, so uh, I can keep track of the time. Uh, stopwatch going. <clears throat> well, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I have never failed a class. Uh, well, that's not true. I failed one class. Uh, <laughs> and that class was at, at Ball, Ball State. I failed a one-credit online finance required course. Um, and how this happened was I continuously just forgot to turn in my assignments on time because I'm just not going to class. And uh, I was a music major and just really, like, had a lot on my plate that was self-inflicted. Um, and so, needless to say, uh, repeatedly not turning in assignments on time is not a good way to pass a class. And so, uh, I ended up not doing very well in dropping that <laughs> course for the semester. Um, but the great thing was I had already t turned in all the assignments late, so then when I just retook it, I had all the assignments there. Um, uh, that's, that's not a, a good thing. But uh, it's not. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, yeah, I, suffice to say, I didn't learn very much from that class, um, except that I should turn in my assignments on time. Um, and, and that's a little mistake made repeatedly over and over again. Um, that had a consequence that I totally deserve. Um, but sometimes consequences, or actions have greater consequences, even little things. On January 29th, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger exploded mid-flight on a mission to deploy a satellite. Thirteen men and women died in this explosion. So Wikipedia says that the disaster was caused by the failure of two redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the space shuttle's right solid rocket booster. The record low temperatures of the launch reduced the elasticity of the rubber O-rings, reducing their ability to seal the joints. Certainly, um, this could have been prevented if more care was paid and development wasn't rushed. Um, but I illustrate these stories, one maybe less serious and one significantly higher consequence that um, mistakes have consequences. And uh, I, I don't know if there was any, I mean, there was definitely sin involved in my part in laziness and not turning in assignments, but what about our sin? Does our sin have consequences before God? Now, obviously, if you kill someone, you're going to go to jail, and if you lie, you're going to feel guilty and break that person's trust. But what about those little sins? Those little ones that no one sees are culturally acceptable. Where we veer off just a little bit from God's law. Do those have consequences? The little complaints, the little white lies that we tell. And uh, today we're going to be in the book of Numbers. So Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible in what's called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible that were given to the people right before they entered the promised land. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. While you're doing that, I am going to pray over the sermon. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, it's been a hard week. And uh, in the midst of this difficulty for so many of us and for our country, would your word be the thing that's implanted in our hearts and give us peace. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and... Uh, 
Holy Spirit, would you fill me as I deliver the word today? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Numbers 20, we're going to start in chapter 1. The people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt and bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Today, we're going to look at the people, Moses the prophet, and what happened at the promised land, and how did God respond to these things. Just think, people, prophet, promised land, and God. And in this moment, the people can see the promised land, um, if you're imagining uh, on a map, they are looking from the southwest into the promised land. Um, and the story opens on kind of a, a sad note. Miriam the prophetess dies. And uh, if there was like a, a movie about her life, it would have like a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, like some good reviews and some bad reviews. Um, on the one hand, uh, she's the sister of Aaron, and she led the whole congregation in worship after they went through the Red Sea. She led all the women in worship with tambourines. This is a really high honor. She was maybe one of the most important women in the, whole in the whole congregation of Israel. On the other hand, she tried to usurp Moses' authority and, uh, with her brother Aaron, and um, an authority given by God. So indirectly, she, she was... Um, saying things about God, saying your authority that you have put in place is not true. And as a result of this, she was given a skin disease for seven days. So it's like, well, she led them in worship, but she also did this bad thing. And um, I think this, her story really epitomizes Israel really well. Because, you know, on the one hand, they're super rebellious to the Lord, but the Lord is also faithful with them and delivered them. And, uh, the beginning of the story, she dies. This is not a good omen for the rest of the story. Um, let's just say, let's just say that. 
And uh, how does the passage follow this up? The people immediately complain. The people grumble against God. Now, there is a real problem here, and I, I don't want to de-emphasize the problem. They need water to survive, as we all do. Um, that's the reality. And I think a lot of times when we complain about things, there's a real problem that needs to be addressed. And so I don't want to minimize the real problem that they had. But their response to God and to Moses and Aaron in these problems are all complaints. So let's take a close look at these here. Verse 3 and 4. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or pomegranates. There is no water to drink. So, um, in verses 3 to 4, they say, we would have rather died. Think about that. They're like, come on, just kill us now. They're probably referencing here. In Numbers chapter 16, there's a, an instance where this whole like section of the people of Israel rebel against the Lord, and God causes the earth to swallow them up. That's crazy. That is insane. Um, and they're saying, I would have rather died with those people than be here thirsty. I mean, this is a completely different posture than uh, in Exodus when Moses was talking to the Lord. It's like, if you don't go with us, we're not going. It's totally different from that. Now they're just like, we're thirsty. Just kill us now. It's it's really sad. Um, Clearly, this is a display of faithlessness. They do not trust that God is going to bring them to the promised land. But it's not just faithlessness, but the people are also forgetful. Verse 5, where they're talking about this evil place and all how this land that they're in doesn't grow any fruit. I'm going to say, of course it does. They're in the wilderness. (laughs) Why would a desert grow fruit? And yet, uh, they've forgotten two things. One, they forgot where they've been. They were um, in oppression under the slavery of Egypt for 400 years. And yet, they are complaining to Moses, why did you bring us here? They forgot all the hardships that they've experienced. And they also forgot that the presence of the Lord was there too. And so, they would rather, in their complaints, be in Egypt, oppressed, and not able to worship the one true God than out here with their God, but thirsty. You see how they've forgotten here? But even even more apparent is their forgetfulness about what the promised land is going to bring. You see, the promised land is supposed to flow with milk and honey. These are pictures of abundance. It takes a lot to grow cattle and milk, especially in those days. Um, You can just go to the store and buy milk and honey. This is a picture of prosperity and of abundance, And yet they are so focused in their moment. This land doesn't bear pomegranates and figs. This land doesn't water our cattle. And they forget that they are going to a land where all these things will be given to them for free. And, uh, you know, this isn't the first time they've complained about water or not having water. Um, This actually happened once before 
earlier in Exodus, um, which Josh preached through. I mean, this was a while ago, but we've been in Exodus for a long time. And, uh, um, but uh, yeah, this has happened before. So not only have they forgotten where they've been, the promises of God, but that God also had provided water for them in the past. They are incredibly forgetful and they're incredibly faithless. That really defines the people throughout the entire story of the whole Bible. And also, for all time, I think every person of all time forgets the good things that God has given to them. And let's just be honest. This is the way of the world. You don't need to go far on Facebook or in a conversation anywhere to see a complaint even about the smallest and stupidest things. And honestly, we have all participated in this, if we're honest. And, and this shouldn't surprise us, right? The sinful nature of man is to complain about the lot that God has given us, and especially for the unsaved people and the worldly people. Why would someone without hope for the resurrection have a reason not to complain? Why would you not do this? Except maybe they're self-conscious about what other people would think about them, but, but then they substitute that for other kinds of complaining that are more hidden. But let's be honest, Christians complain too, myself included. Um, I was convicted as I was studying this. I'm in seminary, and we do a lot of reading for seminary, and some of you may have heard me complain about the amount of reading I do for seminary. And that led me to repentance in this. Um, and we all complain because our sanctification is not yet complete. Um, and I think we don't like to think that we complain, so we just find really clever ways of doing it. Um, like, uh, will you pray for me for this thing? And then you go on to complain about that thing. Or uh, we call it venting. That's a really clever way to talk about complaining. Or um, sometimes uh, we will, people will ask us, how are you doing? And we'll say, I'm doing fine. And in, in the depths of our heart, we complain and complain and complain. We are all guilty about complaining. Um, and there always seems to be something to complain about. Um, and, and what I'm trying to get you to see is that, and, and you probably have noticed this as we've been studying Exodus, and um, ancient Israel and us are very similar in our heart posture toward the Lord. Um, and, and we're also on a journey to a promised land of our own. And so often we complain along the way. All I need to do is look in my own heart to know that this is true. And I think if we all looked inward, we all complain as well. We know it, and we just don't want to admit it. <laughs> um, and uh, when we complain, as Israel does, we display faithlessness and forgetfulness. We, we in that moment, fail to trust the Lord, um, and we forget the promises that we get the whole earth. One day, the earth is going to be given to us. Um, but when we are faithless, God is faithful. And I want you to hold on to this. I don't want you to lose heart right now. We're going to talk about this a little more later. But I want you to keep this nugget. When we're faithless, God is faithful. Um, so, and here, the people are faithless, as we all are. But what about the prophet? What does Moses do? Um, well, let's just say he doesn't do so well either. Uh, 
if we look specifically at the instructions that God gives Moses, he says, speak to the rock and water will come out of it. Uh, I got to say, this is super weird. Um, If I have a need that needs to be met, I don't think the Lord has ever told me, go out into your backyard, pick up a stone and speak to it and water is going to come out, make you thirsty. I I can just imagine this being a very strange thing. Um, And remember, I already mentioned that in Exodus 17, Moses struck the rock and water came out and provided for the congregation. But the instructions are different. The situations, however, are eerily similar. The people complain. um, There is no water. And God provides a way in all of them. And even the wording of the, the location is similar. It's just one letter off. Um, but let's see what Moses does. He doesn't actually speak to the rock. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that um, Moses uh, says, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. So let's observe a couple things about Moses. One, Moses represents God. And so for him to disobey in even a small way, in front of the whole congregation especially, disrespects God. Because God is holy and perfect. And God is always obedient to his own commands. Number two, he gives himself glory. He says, you rebels, we're going to provide this water. We give you this water. This is self-glorifying talk not God-honoring talk. Um, The sense you get when you read this passage is that uh, almost like magic, Moses and and Aaron are using magical powers to um, to give water out of this rock. And three, Moses didn't follow to the T the instructions given to him. Uh, Now, the the last time he struck the rock, and so he does it this time, but this time he has to strike it twice. And in doing so, he disobeys God because he didn't follow his specific command. It is also an act of faithlessness. Um, Instead of following God's command, he went his own way. And I got to say, all these things put together make a really poisonous combination. We don't think a lot of times that uh, if we miss just a little bit, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, But what Moses did here was wrong and wicked and disobedient. And every disobedience is like this. Though we Christians today don't have specific instructions about rocks and striking them and water from them, we do have the scriptures that give us clear teachings about how to follow God, moral and ethical teachings, um, and, and even ways to live our life that are specific. And we break them all the time, myself included. And we justify our sin in so many ways. Um, And uh, when I was on staff with crew, we would frequently do campus evangelism. And people would say things very frequently, like, uh, God's going to judge me for one little white lie. Seriously? Would he seriously do that? That God uh, seems very heavy-handed. I think what we don't realize is that God is holy. So he doesn't... um, count every sin 
because he's nitpicking, um, but because he has no sin within himself. And uh, as Christians, we can have so much hope that those sins are forgiven, every single little sin, through Jesus Christ. Um, And because of that, we can move to follow Christ and honor those little things of the law that God has given us. Um, And we can stop justifying the ways that we sin, saying things like, had a long day. I'm doing great in this other area. I'm fine to just give in a little here. Oh, man, that, that wasn't me who did that. That was somebody else. Who else was it, <laughs> is, is the question. Um, how am I expected to follow this command? And we always say this about the commands that are really hard for us to follow. Um, but the great thing about salvation in Jesus Christ is that we actually can't because he forgives us, and that frees us to follow God's law. And in the midst of all the sin of the people and the prophet, they, they all sin. They're, they are sinners through and through. The people are, and the prophet are both not painted in a good picture in the scripture. What does God do in the midst of this? Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord And through them, he showed himself holy. Even though the people were disobedient and the prophet was disobedient, God God does not change. He is not like the gods of the nations who interact with people and quarrel with them and change like them and get in little fights with them. No, he is sovereign. He created the universe, is totally sovereign over time. And no matter what people do to dishonor God, God stays honorable and holy and worthy of worship. This is a, another question that was often brought up when I was doing evangelism on campus. Why would a holy God exist in a world where there is all this sin? Well, He's not the one doing the sinning. We are always the ones doing the sinning. And he will bring justice for those sins that are committed, but he is long-suffering with his people because he loves them. And he wants to see them brought back to himself. And in this specific event, how does God show himself holy? Well, two ways. One, he gives Moses the just punishment that he deserves for dishonoring him. That is, he does not lead the people into the land. He led the people wrongly, and now he doesn't get to lead them at all in the end. But he also shows himself holy through his grace. He still provided water for their, to quench their, their thirst. Did they deserve this? Absolutely not. The people are super wicked, and yet abundant grace is available for them. And I want to encourage you, if you're watching online today or if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, abundant grace is available for you too. You can drink from the stream of living living water that comes from the person of Christ that will never end and you will never be thirsty again. And it is greater than any sort of uh, kind of therapeutic forgiveness we give ourselves is way better than that, Um, is real and righteous and good, purchased by the blood of Jesus. 
Um, and yet there is earthly consequences to Moses' actions. Um, we looked at the people, the prophet, God's response. What happens to the promised land? Now, Moses and Aaron both don't get to inherit the promised land. Um, so Aaron dies later in the chapter, which is pretty immediate um, justice on his part. But what happens to Moses? Well, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 34. That is the next book in the Bible, and we're gonna, that is the last chapter of the entire Pentateuch. And it talks about how Moses died, the manner of his death. And you will see that Moses' end is very bittersweet. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. There's the fulfillment of what happened in Numbers. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him, for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all the servants, to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. The end is bittersweet. On the one hand, Moses dies a righteous man. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. He's healthy and uh, in his old age. And the people mourn for him for 30 days. This is an honorable thing. And yet he does not get to see the promised land. And really interestingly, if you look in that text, as he's looking out in the promised land, he can see where the different tribes will dwell in the future. I mean, this is crazy. God is revealing to him the promised land and he doesn't get to inherit it. But it's not just Moses It's the whole generation that Moses was a part of dies before seeing the promised land. Only their children get to inherit the promised land. And you know what? Those children who inherited the promised land were wicked also. They too dishonored God. And every generation after, there's always sin that comes through and through. It's the nature of man. And we just sin all the time. Where is the righteous man of Israel? They are nowhere to be found. And uh, this is a bleak picture. This is super bleak. Um, If I could summarize the story thus far, it would be this. 
a grumbling people and a disobedient prophet lose the promised land, and yet God is still holy. That's the only good part in this whole thing. A grumbling people and a disobedient prophet lose the promised land, and yet God is still holy. The consequences of this are far worse than failing one class and even worse than the challenger disaster because the whole fate of God's people is at stake. That's a big, that's a big deal. But if you're a Christian, you know it doesn't end here. Um, let's turn to Luke uh, 9, chapter uh, 28, and we're going to read through verse 36. So, I'm just going to read up there. <clears throat> now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. This is Jesus they're talking about. And his clothes, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, when, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So uh, in my notes, all I have about this passage, it just says geek out because this is super cool. This is super cool. Okay, so let's see what's going on here. First of all, I want to point out Moses is here. Moses is here. He's still alive. Even though he's not, you know, present with the whole people of Israel right now, he's alive and he's talking with Jesus. The greatest prophet before Jesus of Israel is alive. He gets to see Christ and he has the blessing of talking with the Lord. Number two, God's presence actually descends. That picture of the cloud is God. That, that is a picture of God entering with his people. Remember, at the end of Exodus, the presence of the Lord descends on the temple. But here, it descends, and Peter and James and John walk into the cloud without being destroyed. That is insane. That's crazy. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine that? And uh, can you go back to that slide where it, it talks about the departure? So in... In verse, well, I don't know what verse it is. Well, anyway, he men- Jesus mentions, I'm going to accomplish, um, go back two more maybe. There it is, there it is. Who appeared in his glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, it literally means exodus. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is going to do a new exodus for the people of God. This is crazy. This is crazy. The story is not over. Even though the people keep falling back into sin, 
Jesus is going to Exodus. He's going to get them out of that and lead them into the new promised land. If the old model was a grumbling people and a disobedient prophet lose the promised land, and yet God is still holy, this is the model that is perfected in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ redeems his people as the perfect prophet into an eternal promised land, and God is holy through it all. Let me say that one more time. Jesus Christ redeems a people as the perfect prophet into an eternal promised land, and God is holy through it all. Now, you may be saying to yourself, that is great, but look at my life. I do not follow God's law. Just the sin of complaining alone that we've talked about today is enough to condemn me for my faithlessness and forgetfulness. Not to mention all the other laws that I break every single day. How can I have hope? And I want you to remember, Jesus Christ redeems a people, which you are one of, as the perfect prophet into an eternal promised land. First, the people. Jesus was crucified with thieves to redeem a people to himself. If you are a Christian, you are a redeemed person. The chains of sin are gone and you no longer have to fall back into fear. This is your identity. You were once a child of wrath and now you're a child of God. He has given you his favor and saved you into a multi-ethnic global bunch of brothers and sisters, all who are also redeemed as well. United in Christ together to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the measure of your faith is not equal to the quantity of your faith, but the one you put your faith in, right? The way we are saved into the people of God is by Christ's blood, and we trust that by faith. Just the tiniest amount of faith. It takes almost nothing, and the Lord will grow that into great things for his kingdom. Number two, the prophet. Jesus Christ was the perfect prophet. He obeyed the law to the very tiniest letter. Where Moses failed, and you know, this wasn't the only time he failed. At the beginning of his life, he murdered someone. Um, so uh, he, he, he failed multiple times. Moses was not a perfect person. Jesus was perfect his whole life. Many of you are probably very discouraged because of the amount of failure that you have done. However, in Christ, we get his obedience. What do I mean by this? No matter how much we fail by Christ's perfect substitutionary death on the cross, his obedience is substituted for our own. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. Jesus Christ was the perfect prophet on our behalf. Number three, the promised land. We get something even better than the Old Testament promised land. Our promised land is the new, uh, excuse me, the new heavens and the new earth. We get everything and it's all going to be redeemed and perfect. I'm going to be honest. This is really hard to wait for. It's been a really terrible week for most of us. And there are going to be even more terrible weeks and even more, more terrible weeks to come in this life. We will suffer. 
And yet, God is good, and he reveals himself holy through all of it. And so, we can wait with patience for this promised land that is coming. Jesus Christ redeems a people as the perfect prophet into an eternal promised land, and God is holy through all of it. With this in mind, I want to leave you with, I think I have six things here, to help you uh, specifically um, wait well without complaint, but also generally to um, follow all the letters of the law. I'm not saying this as someone who's perfect, um, but I'm just looking at the scriptures and seeing what they say. So number one, adoration. Paul says in Colossians, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we fix our eyes on Christ because of who he is and what he has done. And also what we will become. These are all things that are worthy of worship. And um, I have found that when I fix my eyes on Christ and on the things of God and the things he wants me to think about, and I adore him, those things that I am tempted to complain about just kind of fall away because I'm not looking at those things anymore. And I'm not saying this, again, as someone who's done this perfectly, as someone who's done it imperfectly, as we all do. Um, And uh, also, this kind of leads into the next one. Um, But the things that are really hard, we bring to God rightly. So the first one was adoration. The second one is lamentation. So, you know, a really wise man named Josh, he, he once said, lament and complaint often sound the same is just the direction we put it in that makes all the difference. I, I really wish our senior pastor was that wise. Um, but, but he actually said that. But in all seriousness, um, the world is really harsh and really oppressive and difficult and broken. People are sinful. It can be really tempting to just grumble and complain and wish that everything gets better and wallow in self-pity but that's not the biblical model. But the biblical model is also just, it's not like just accept your lot and hope things get better and just push through it. You'll get, it'll get, you'll get through it and just forget about those hard things. No, the biblical model is cry out to God. Ask him why the world is not the way it is. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Implied in that is earth doesn't look like heaven yet. And that's why we pray for it. But it will be like heaven someday. Number three, supplication. Our Father knows exactly what we need, when we need it, at all times. He owns the cattle on a thousand foothills. Why do we not have what we need? James tells us in James 4, 2 through 3, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your passions. If God doesn't give you what you need or think you need in this moment, he is probably growing you to the type of person who will ask for the right thing, to trust him through it all. But we ask him while we wait. And that's hard. That's really hard. 
but he has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can ask for the right things and we can trust him. So what have I said so far? So far, adoration, lamentation, supplication. Number four, transformation. Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And uh, the way we do this is twofold. So one, we soak ourselves in the scriptures, collectively and individually, because um, the scriptures always are true. They're always right. And if we do this rightly, it will transform the way we live our lives. But we also do this by distancing ourselves from the the things of the world that lead us away from Christ. And uh, I think people tend to do one of these two things, but not both at the same time. So a lot of people will read their Bible a lot, and yet at the same time it doesn't transform them because they're entrenched um, in the things of the world. And, And we all do this. We all do this. Other people think they have to self-harm and, uh, I, I don't mean this in necessarily the physical way, but just take things away, but they never um, fill that gap with Scripture. And because we always worship something, then they just start worshiping another idol. <laughs> they don't actually change. Um, we need to do both of those things. And remember, this is transformation, but this transformation takes time. We can't expect to start obeying God immediately like that in every area of our life, because that's not the way God works. It's a slow process. Um, But this will help you fight against both complaint and the other sins that you struggle with, um, because you recognize this is a slow process. I'm not there yet, and I won't be until Christ takes me up to be with him perfectly. Number five, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the opposite of complaining. You cannot be complaining and be thankful at the same time. I'm not saying that you don't be real about the hard things, but there is always something to be thankful for. We have breath that is given to us by God, salvation through Jesus Christ. We're all here, so we've all been eating food and drinking water. We have many things to be thankful for, even when life is really hard. And we can lament and be thankful at the same time, which is, again, really hard to do, which is why we need each other to remind each other why we need to do these things. And the last one is salvation. Salvation. None of this is going to matter or even be possible if you are not saved. In the end, if you live a short moral life, you think you're a good person and you do lots of good things, it doesn't matter. You don't get the promised land in the end because your wickedness keeps you out. If you are here, and everybody is like this. This is not something for special people. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, if you want to enter the promised land, Christ died for you. He died took the punishment that we deserve on himself, and he gave us eternal life, an eternal promised land. Your whole life can be transformed for eternity because of him. Who wouldn't want that? It's a wonderful thing. So, if you are in this room or you're watching online and you don't know Christ, come to him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He gives you lots of things to be thankful for. Um, So I'm going to run through those again, and then we'll wrap this up. Adoration, lamentation, supplication, 
transformation, thanksgiving, and salvation. And all of this is possible because Jesus Christ redeemed a people as the perfect prophet into an eternal promised land, and God is holy through all of it. And um, I want to ask you guys one last question, and I'm going to answer it. So, yeah. Uh, Where do we stand now? Uh, Where do we, as the church, stand? We are dying on the banks of the Jordan. Now, unless the Great Commission is accomplished soon, and Jesus comes back and takes us into his presence, and all things get fixed, that would be amazing if that happened in this lifetime. But we are all going to die. It could be today, or 10 years from now, or 50 years from now. I hope to live a long life, but uh, God has portioned out my days, and I trust him with those things. But until then, until we get our eternal home, we are sojourners in the wilderness of this world. This world is not our home. And yet, we have been freed from the bonds of Egypt in Christ, called to be obedient until we get our possessions and get the promised land. Can't you taste it? The milk and honey on your tongue? You see the lush plains in front of you over the Jordan. And the fruitful land is right there for us to inherit. And the spies have gone in and they've returned with these huge grapes that you can't even believe how juicy they are. Just one taste sends your mind reeling with the possibilities of what life will be like in the promised land. And it's so hard right now. But we are here only because of the the blood of the lamb. And it was painted on the doorpost for us. While we wait, Jesus is our perfect prophet who promised to give our hearts living water in the Holy Spirit that never, ever runs dry. We don't deserve it, but he gives it as a gift. So we stand on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Let's pray. Christ, you're the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. You're our God. Bring us into the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.